This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. You have a copy of God's Word to the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Find on page 1014 if you want to use one of the, the Pew Bibles. Peter was writing to Christians who were experiencing intense social pressure, the beginnings of persecution. And this morning we're going to finish his doxology, his expression of praise. Remember verses 3 through 12. Last week we looked at verses 6 through 9, where there he said that they are tasting even now the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls, when as they suffer, they by God's grace experience joy that is inexpressible and glorious. And now we pick it up in verses 10 through 12. Let's hear beginning at verse 6. In this, that is in the... Salvation he has described, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of glory, honor, and praise. And worthy of a little suffering. Help us, Lord. In this hour together, Lord, to feel our hearts enlarged by a deepening grasp and experience of your grace and mercy and salvation in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Surrounded by people who rejected him, Jesus said to his disciples one day, Blessed are your eyes. For they see, and your ears, 
for they hear. Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. There he stood in their presence, the Son of God, the Eternal Son incarnate, God in flesh, and they had no idea. Scripture says he came to his own, and his own knew him not. They had no comprehension of the incomparable privilege it was to see and hear the Son of the living God, the promised Messiah. The prophets, says Jesus, longed to see and hear him, but they never did. The multitudes did. The crowd saw him and heard him, but they did not value him because they lacked the spiritual perception to appraise, to appraise the value of the one standing before them. And those things, beloved, those things that we value the most, those things we cherish the most, that bring us the most fulfillment or joy, are worth suffering for. Those things that bring us lasting purpose and happiness, are worth suffering for. People have suffered for liberty and are right now in this country. People suffer for wealth. People are willing to suffer for more possessions. People are willing to suffer for family. The one that stands before you and me in the Gospels is the one worthy of all glory praise, and honor, and worth suffering in our day, in our time. Jesus, on several occasions, sought to make clear the priceless value, the incomparable value of the kingdom of God, as Matthew puts it, and of belonging, that is to say, to the kingdom of God, of being a Christian, we would say, of being saved. He told parables uh, to demonstrate the value. One of those you, many of you are, are familiar with, both in Matthew and Luke. He took, spoke there of the merchant who searches around the world for something worthy of investing in. And what does he find? He finds one pearl, a pearl of great price. In those days, the pearls were the diamonds of their time. They were a, a very easy way to carry a lot of wealth. So small were they. But he finds this one pearl that he sells everything he has for not a dozen pearls, for one pearl. He did then what, um, what every investment guidance counselor would say you should never do, not only today, but then. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Diversify. And that was true then, even as it is now. In other words, in, in, in conveying the parable in the way he did, Jesus was demonstrating the incomparable value of the kingdom of God. It's worth everything. 
It's worth suffering. So great was its value. And I think, I say that because I think that's exactly what Peter is doing here in verses 10 through 12. He is seeking to magnify the greatness of their salvation, our salvation in Christ, in part because having just said, just said that they rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of suffering. Peter knows from his own experience, his own failures, his own struggles, that there will those who will think, I'm not sure I can keep doing this stuff. I'm not sure if it's worth it. I'm not sure he's worth it. Is he worthy of suffering? And so Peter elevates right at the end there, having mentioned salvation, he says, concerning this salvation, let me tell you something about it. And so he elevates, he magnifies in this closing verses of his doxology the incomparable value, the greatness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So if we understand it that way, that's how I understand his purpose. I would say the main message uh, in these verses that Peter is conveying is that believers can better endure present suffering by appreciating the glorious privilege it is to be saved. That you can endure suffering. You can persevere you can withstand some being marginalized, some being criticized when you better appreciate the glorious privilege it is to possess that pearl of great price, to be in the kingdom of God. And I think if I were to say it negatively, I'd say in these verses, there's also a reason that a lot of us who believe the good news, a lot of us who believe the gospel, still find it or may find it difficult to handle our troubles and suffer well. Why? Because we fail to value the great privilege and greatness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We fail to remember what we deserve. We live in a, live in a culture of entitlement. And the scriptures say, there's none righteous, no, not one. You were all, he says, children of wrath, destined to condemnation. We fail to remember and recognize the greatness, the privilege, the unspeakable, unspeakable privilege it is to belong to the kingdom of God to be saved, to be a Christian. Sometimes we are our greatest trials, if you know what I mean. Because we fail to think as the Lord wants us to think, as we should think. And so my objective this morning, by God's grace, is the same as I think the Spirit was in, in Peter's writing these verses, and that is to magnify the glory of our salvation, to encourage you, as Paul says in Romans 12, 12, to be patient in tribulation. Our trials may be different, but our resources are the same. 
And so allow me to describe to you what makes our salvation so great a salvation. This, of course, is not exhaustive. There, but here are four ways that our salvation is great here in these three verses. First of all, it is great because it is a salvation accomplished and applied by God's grace. And though the word is not in the text, I add it, God's grace alone. <laughs> We've sung about that in the very first song, by grace and grace alone. Notice what he says, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So the grace stands in parable to this salvation. In other words, it's not just a message about grace, but everything involved in our salvation is summed up as grace <laughs> or the grace our entire experience, beginning right at the very beginning of this letter, being God's elect exiles, being sanctified by the Spirit, being sprinkled by the blood of Christ, being born again by His great mercy, born into a living hope, which is an inheritance that is guarded for us who are guarded by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day Last week it was, in this you rejoice, and this week it's, oh, this is the grace, you see, is the grace that he says, unbelievably, that is yours. Yours is this grace. And what is grace? Grace, you know, has been defined. We reflect on this at various points as God's favor, God's favor extended to undeserving sinners. But it's more than undeserving sinners. And we strain at stressing this point that we might magnify the grace of God. It is God's favor freely, unboundedly extended, given to ill-deserving sinners. There's none righteous, not one. The wages of sin is death. It's not like we're neutral. <laughs> And we just haven't done enough good. It is that we're utterly lost apart from His grace. Our salvation, therefore, is the grace. It is rooted in grace alone. It is accomplished by grace alone. It is applied, it is received, it is experienced by grace alone. Our salvation is not a cooperative affair. It is not 99.9% God and 0.1% you. It is 100% the grace and grace of God alone. We are brought to life as Lazarus was raised from the dead. Was Lazarus pushing and Jesus pulling? No, it was what? It is Lazarus come forth. <laughs> and thus is your salvation. It is a great salvation because it was accomplished and applied entirely by God's grace alone. You know what? That is great news for any one of you here today that's not sure you're a Christian. It is great news for you because that means that no matter how bad you have sinned, no matter what it is that you've done, His grace is greater than your sin. And so don't let your pride keep you from humbling yourself Finally, humbling yourself and admitting you're a sinner and asking God 
for his grace and mercy and the forgiveness of your sins. Paul echoes this, of course, in Ephesians chapter 2. He reminds us of where we were, dead in the trespasses of our sins. We walked in this way. Uh, we, were, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when or while at that very moment that we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Then he says, by grace you've been saved. So that's the first reason our salvation is great and glorious and worthy of our praise and willingness to suffer. Because it's a salvation accomplished and applied by God's grace alone. Secondly, it is a salvation that fulfills all of God's promises. All of God's pro prophetic promises are come together. They coalesce in our age, our time, with the exception of the, of the consummation of the things that lie ahead. So you and I live in the era of fulfillment, not in the era of shadows and promises. He says there, the prophets, in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That was the great subject of their prophecies, and it was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving you. What a, what a, what a thing to, to think about, to consider. And so these prophets are the Old Testament prophets. I don't think they're the New Testament prophets. Beginning with the proto-prophet uh, uh, himself, Moses, all the way to the last prophet, they were all, all uh, speaking about the things that you would benefit from, the salvation. In other words, uh, one, one point I want to make is that it's not some concoction made up by a few sort of self-appointed religious teachers. These prophets were the mouthpieces of God, and our salvation was detailed. It was described by these prophets over the centuries, men who never met each other, men who were separated by centuries and different cultures, and yet it is one unified message filled with the promises of God that all coalesce and center on one historical figure, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It all came to fulfillment, fruition in him, in his life, death, and resurrection. It is tremendous when you think about it. And this is how Jesus read the Old Testament, and this is how you and I ought to read the Old Testament. You remember, yet again, that great Bible study between Jesus and uh, at first those two disciples walking uh, on the road to a town named Emmaus. They were heartbroken. They did not understand the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus had been crucified, and they had no, no reason to believe in their own understanding that he had to suffer and then enter into glory, and that he had been raised from the dead. And remember, he appears to them, and he speaks to them. And he corrects them and says, was it not necessary, I'm in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things, these things they've been talking about, crucifixion, 
and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, right? Their hearts were burning, and then he disappears. Then he appears to the, uh, to the, the rest of the disciples in the upper room. And in verse 44 of Luke 24, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's, the, that's all the scriptures, which were their scriptures, the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus, thus, it is written, it has been written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, sufferings, then glory, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the way Christ read and interpreted the Old Testament. It was one grand book of promises coalescing historically upon this one person himself. And that's how you and I should read the Old Testament and come with that, that eagerness, that desire to see how it points to Christ or prepares for Christ. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I would give every book upstairs and every class I ever took and every sermon I've ever heard, I would exchange it all to have just been there. <laughs> to hear the great master unfold things that I just never understood and see how gloriously the prophets all spoke the same message and how it all came to fruition in this one life, God's Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible, beloved, is like a snowball. A snowball of promises that gets larger and larger and larger as it rolls down the hill through history. It begins right away in Genesis 3.15 with that very first gospel promise, the Proto-Evangelum victory over the serpent through the seed of a woman. And then there are other promises added. And then it, it, it hits this great expansion uh, when God promises to Abraham that it would be his seed, through his seed, that all the seeds, all the nations would be blessed. And then you have just all the other glorious picture prophecies of, of the exodus, of the Passover, the blood, the lamb, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood. And then you have all the figures, the individuals, the persons that prefigured the Messiah, David and Moses and Adam, as we sang. We, we worship the greater Adam and so forth and so forth. All these things are like a snowball that just keep getting bigger and bigger as we come towards the time of the Messiah. You know, there are at least 300 prophecies. That's being conservative because people debate just how many. Some have it up into the 400s. There are at least 300 prophecies, and they were all fulfilled in the life of one individual, Jesus of Nazareth, 48 prophecies in his crucifixion alone. And you think about that. What are the chances of something like that happening? The subject matter of all these things is what? The sufferings of the Messiah that lead to the glories that follow. Sufferings that lead to glory. What kind of prophecy do you have? You have the Davidic prophecy, the virgin birth, the, the birth in Bethlehem, the flight to Egypt, the coming out of Egypt, that he would be a Nazarene, the slaughter of the innocents, the triumphant entry, the donkey's full, the forerunner who was John the Baptist, betrayal by a friend. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, pierced hands and feet, yet no bones broken. 
crucified with transgressors, given gall and vinegar. Soldiers would gamble for his clothing. He'd be buried with the rich. Uh, he would rise from the dead. And that's just a, a small portion of the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of this one man. You may have heard of this. I think probably you have, a lot of you, if you've been a Christian for some time. Uh, Peter Stoner, in his book, long time ago, Science Speaks, applied the modern science of probability to, to just eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one person. And he says, the chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th. So one with 17 zeros, right? One hundred quadrillion. Children, try adding that up, okay? One hundred quadrillion. And then maybe you heard this, right? He goes on to illustrate what was, what exactly, that's a hard number to picture. What exactly would one hundred quadrillion uh, look like? And he says, well, take one hundred quadrillion silver dollars and you could you could cover the entire state of Texas for two feet deep. He says, then blindfold somebody, tell them they can walk anywhere in Texas and pick up one silver dollar that has an X on it. He said, that's the chances of just eight prophecies concerning Christ, particularly his Passion Week and crucifixion. That's the chances of that being fulfilled in the life of one individual. How glorious is the gospel, huh? How glorious is our salvation in that it is the fulfillment and brings together all of this in our own experience. This authenticates, it authenticates the gospel and it undergirds and magnifies the glory of your salvation and should encourage you deeply and profoundly. Uh, this is repeated and emphasized throughout the New Testament. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter, speaking of David, he says that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Chapter 318, Peter again, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter again, Acts 324, and all the prophets who have spoken, all of them from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, the time in which they were living. And then later in Acts, it's Paul who says uh, that he was saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And what did all the prophets and Moses say? Acts 26, 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And then Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, you heard this all before, for all the promises, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ Jesus. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Peter's main point then here in this one, in this section where I'm getting at is that the believers in Jesus Christ, his readers and you and I, are incredibly blessed to live in the time of fulfillment. Not in the time of mere shadows of prophecies, but in the time of the fulfillment of all the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't see him, he said. He had just told them, right? Yet you love him. And though you are not seeing him right now, 
you are believing in him, you say. And you are ex experiencing, at times, a inexpressible and glorious joy that commingles with your own griefs and your own sufferings. And we said last week, that is one of the greatest assurances you'll ever have, that you were truly born again. And that is what? Your ability to feel joy and praise for Christ, even in your sufferings for him in the midst of your own trials. And so, beloved, what makes our salvation great? It is a salvation accomplished and applied by God's grace alone. It is a salvation that fulfills all the promises of God. Yes, there's more ahead, but the vast majority are already ex you are already experiencing in the gift of your salvation. Thirdly, it is a salvation worthy of ardent inquiry. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A salvation worthy of deep and ardent study and reflection. He said concerning this salvation, this whole scheme and plan of redemption, everything, right? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, serving you. So it is a, a salvation worthy of ardent inquiry, study, reflection, searched and inquired carefully. That can literally be translated searched intently and with the greatest care. Searched intently and with the greatest care. One of my professors, Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on this says the two verbs should be interpreted together, indicating how ardently the prophets investigated the salvation about which they prophesied. How ardently they investigated the salvation of which they of which they prophesied. The prophets spoke the word of God as God gave them the word. They were empowered by the Spirit, but they did not really fully understand uh, how it would all come to fruition. They reflected not only on their prophecies, but on earlier prophecies and how these things connected. For example, in the experience of Daniel, and Daniel in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 12, you have a couple times where he has these visions. They are prophecies. And he concludes by saying, I, I needed to understand. I wanted to understand. I prayed. I fasted so I could understand. And then we're told in there he was reading Jeremiah, the, the prophet. And he was trying to put together what Jeremiah was saying, you see. And so that's the kind of thing that Peter is referring to here. And what were they looking into so carefully? Well, the grammar is not definite. They were either looking into the circumstances and time, or they were looking into who, the person and time. So depending on what translation you might have, the ESV and the New American Standard uh, use the word person, uh, looking, at, looking for what person and what time. The NIV and the King James, uh, what circumstances and time, the situation. In other words, they were all aware that they were speaking about an individual, a Messiah, the Messiah. But they longed to know when it would take place 
and either who it would be or how it was going to take place, what the circumstances were to be. If I had to pick one, I think I would go with circumstances and not person. Why? Because it goes on to say, you remember, that they came to understand, they became aware they were not serving their own time. So how would they know what person or ever find out what person, but they were serving you a time way in the future. So I think it's probably best to see it that they were, they were, they were seeking and studying and reflecting deeply and praying like Daniel was to understand when would this be and what are the circumstances what kinds of things would they be reflecting about? Well, how is it that Messiah can suffer? How would this lead to glories that follow? You can imagine anyone who followed Isaiah's prophecies would reflect on chapter 53 on the Messiah's rejection, his oppression, his judgment, his afflictions, eventual death, and then his vindication. Uh, that he would justify the many. What's that mean? And that he would be with a rich man in his death and so forth, and you can imagine them looking into that and praying and seeking to understand how do these circumstances work out. But what I want to say to you, that one of the things that makes your salvation so glorious is that it is a salvation worthy of this kind of deep reflection, study, and knowledge, even by God's prophets. And if you were to say, yeah, but now we live in the time of fulfillment, so why have to study so much? Because even now, angels long to look into what you are experiencing. And that's in the present tense. This is Peter's way of saying it is still a glorious gem that is being examined even by these celestial beings. You know, where it says there in verse 12 that angels long uh, to look into this, the the verb long is that strong verb that we've seen before, epithumel, hyper, strong passions, desires. Uh, it's to crave something. It's like an obsession, right? And it's a present tense. And what are they obsessed with? They are longing, they're craving to look. And when that verb look is not a glance, it's to gaze at something, to gaze a long time at something like you would at uh, the Yosemite Valley, if you ever hiked high enough to look down at it, <laughs> to gaze down at something that's gorgeous and beautiful. It says that even the angels long, they are obsessed with looking into uh, what you experience, this salvation in Jesus Christ, you know. I mean, sometimes we, we don't know a lot a whole lot about angels, only what God has revealed about angels. We know they're glorious beings, um, <clears throat> And sometimes maybe you would think something would be great to know more about angels. I know sometimes when we teach angelology at seminary, that's the kind of question. I wish there was more uh, to understand about angels, you know. What would it be like to be one? What exactly are with what they're like? Peter says, forget all that. Forget that. Angels are obsessed with looking at you. <laughs> they're obsessed with trying to understand your experience. You think about it. They are forever fixed as glorious beings. They see the living God, yes. They are servants of God, yes. And sitting next to the right hand of the Father, who do they see? They see the eternal Son who did not become an angel, but became a man. They see a glorified man sitting next to the Father, the eternal Father. They remain servants. 
but you and I in Him are sons. Sons of the living God through Christ. We are in the family. That is a joy they'll never know. That is an experience they'll never go through. That is a hope they never will have, you see. They remain God's servants. You are God's sons. You are members of the eternal family. That is a privilege. And says they're looking into this, trying to understand. So we may think it would be interesting to do it the other way. And Peter says, you have it upside down. <laughs> Uh, so great is your is your salvation. So, beloved, the salvation, both the message of the gospel and what the gospel brings to fruition, uh, is more than just a body of information. It is more than a collection of religious facts. It is the hub of a great wheel with spokes to go out in all sorts of different directions, going back to the before the foundation of the world and God's mercy, God's justice, the eternal son, the, 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 the power of the new birth, the resurrection. It, the spokes just go in every direction, and it is worthy, even right now, of your further reflection, <laughs> your further meditation and understanding. Remember we said last week, in this, you rejoice. Your mind serves your heart. Understand what it is, what a glorious privilege it is to hold the pearl of great price because of God's grace and mercy towards you. Amen? And so we reflect as a church on these things repeatedly. It was Augustine who once said, and he said it only about the Gospel of John, he said, it is shallow enough for a child not to drown yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in it. Swim. Swim. You have received, you have received, even you now, today, some 2,000 years later, what others long for and never did. The new covenant promises, fulfillment in the new covenant. The book of Hebrews, the author in chapter 11, speaking of so many he says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You may say, well, I, looking backwards, I feel it's from afar, you know. I wish I was there. Uh, faith is not a matter of, of sight. It's a matter of God's grace. Remember from last week. <coughs> you believe because you've seen, says Jesus to Thomas. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. You know who that is again? That's you. You are blessed. Thoroughly blessed. Now, lastly, it is a salvation revealed by God, which is what makes this so great. It is revealed by God, made known by God, both indirectly through his mouthpieces, the prophets, and also directly in a very personal way. Let me describe that uh, here in verses 10 through 12. You know, the prophets, the prophets of God weren't religious thinkers and tinkers. 
who came up with some ideas and predictions, you know, like, here's my best guess, <laughs> you know, like weathermen uh, who are frequently wrong, right? <laughs> here's my best guess. No, no, no. Verse 11, verse 11 says the spirit of Christ, that's not his human spirit, I, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit whom Christ promised and poured out on Pentecost. He says the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. He was the one indicated when he preached the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So it was the Spirit of Christ in them. And though those things remained a mystery to the prophets, they have now been announced, he says, to you. To you. And he's speaking to his readers, and the same would be true to you, although some of the individuals would be different. Three times he says you in that one verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. And they preached it by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what a privilege. What a privilege. The gospel the power of God under salvation and the salvation that it, that it brings is God's gift revealed and announced, proclaimed in power to you, to you, because of the mercy and the infinite love of God. It was the Spirit of Christ in them who gave them the prophecies. Peter says, 2 Peter 1.21 no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure many of you heard there that verb carried along just like the wind filling the sails of a ship. The ship goes where the wind blows it. And so God's Spirit used the personalities of these individuals, kept those personalities intact, and influenced them in such a way that they were not robots, but they spoke the very words of God. Second Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is God-breathed. It's all the breath of God. And when the apostles and others announced and preached the good news to those readers, it says that they preached the good news to them, speaking of Peter's readers, they, speak, they preached the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And this is not a reference to the content of the good news alone because that was already revealed. It's, it's a reference to the power that came in the preaching of the good news to them. As D. Edmund Hebert says there in his commentary, their preaching was, and I quote, by a power beyond themselves. And that was the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, you if you were a Christian, you came to be a Christian not like you sign up to join Costco. You know, not, oh, I, I like Costco, I want the benefits, I'm going to sign up. If you are a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God came to you through the good news, not only the message was inspired by the Spirit, but it came in word and in power so that it affected you. It may not have been at that very moment that uh, you were converted, but maybe that seed was planted there by the Spirit, and He caused it to germinate 
later. There have been many great conversions and testimonies like that. But you came to believe in the same way they came, and that is through the gospel message uh, uh, given by God to these prophets through the Holy Spirit and then through the gospel being communicated to you. At some point, it came with the power of the Holy Spirit and it awakened you. He awakened you by God's grace. He made you alive together with Christ at that moment. And so, um, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. I point this out at times. It's worth going back. In chapter 1, he knew that God had chosen them. He said, what are you talking about? He says in chapter 1, verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How's that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, it always has to come in words, right? But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then he says, what was the result? You became imitators. You became imitators of us. And what was part of their imitation? <coughs> they turned from idols to serve the living and true God, even as they were being persecuted. And that's part of the product of a, a true new birth. So, and beyond this, beloved, beyond this, I mean, Peter doesn't go into all this here, does he? Peter doesn't mention it here, but you and I live in the age when the Spirit not only opens our eyes, but the Spirit indwells us, right? In chapter 2, he says that Jesus is a living cornerstone, and you Christians are living stones hewed out of the quarry, which is Christ, and you're all being built up into this temple, you see, as Paul says in Ephesians, the dwelling place for God. How great a salvation, beloved. That is our experience. Do you see it with the eyes of faith? Do you reflect upon it? What a privilege. What a great salvation. What it means to be a Christian. It is a salvation accomplished and applied by God's grace alone. All of those aspects of, of your salvation. It is a salvation that fulfills all of God's promises in this one person to whom you are now united by faith. It is salvation worthy of your ongoing ardent inquiry and study and reflection even now. Uh, and it's also a salvation that was revealed not by men, but revealed by God, both in an indirect way through the prophets, but then in a very personal way to you, to you, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I know, I know that this moment is not how we think in line at Safeway. You know, unless you're kind of gloriously filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment. I know it's not always how you reflect uh, and what you're, what you're thinking. But beloved, it is, it is a spring of life we come back to all the time. And it's our duty to do this for each other. It is, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is, is the song, right? We need to come back to this. Rejoicing shouldn't take much effort given the riches we all have and share in Christ, but many times it does. Many times it does take effort because the pressures of life overwhelm some of you. And sometimes it's the pleasures of life that distract you. 
either one keeps you from reflecting on the pearl of great price. Some of you face difficulties right now and you're sinking under burdens and others are simply distracted by the pleasures of life. Our trials, our temptations, our tests may be different than theirs were at this moment, but our resources are exactly the same. Exactly the same. We all live together in the age of fulfillment, the messianic age of the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, your salvation, beloved, is not a work you initiated, and it's a work that only God can and will complete. It is the pearl of great price, and your future is bursting with indescribable blessing. Charles Simeon was a pastor who endured tremendous suffering over a 50-plus year period in one congregation, and it was there, even in the way he was treated in the church, that he went through lots of suffering. And this man would would, uh, keep himself strong, his his what kept him afloat was reflecting on salvation, the grace of God, some four hours every morning. And as he came to his deathbed, one of the last things he says, someone came to him because he was so such a thoughtful and deep-thinking uh, person. They came to him and they said, what are you thinking about now as he laid there? And he said, I'm not thinking. I'm just enjoying. And how could you get to that point where you could face death like that? By understanding the unspeakable value of what it means to know Christ. There is no greater thing. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. He's worthy of all glory, honor, praise, and he's worthy of suffering being marginalized by family members, of being criticized, of being considered an idiot, of losing out on something for. And more than that, as you follow him in this and you share in his sufferings, your faith becomes more pure and your joy more inexpressible. Chapter 2, Peter will say, Christ suffered for you leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Suffering, then glory. Christ, for you. Is he worthy? You think about it. Think about what you sang today. Let's pray.